Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 44 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, December the 4th. First, I'll be talking to Andrew Laurie, successful entrepreneur and business coach, who is regularly ranked among the top business coaches in the world. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Green about how COVID-19 has affected our clear thinking process as we search for solutions. But now, let's talk to Andrew Laurie. Andrew, what makes a good business coach? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I should start by saying I don't think there's one answer to that. I think for different people, for different situations, different aspirations, there are different requirements. I think there are a couple of items that are almost universally important uh, for a coach to have. And then perhaps there are a couple that I, I, I like myself. So I think for so much of coaching is about asking questions and and having good, good skills around listening, empath- being empathetic. I think those are vital. Uh, sometimes how you respond to what comes up, though, done well, it's, it's about being objective and, and honest, of course. Uh, but sometimes it requires, I think, real courage to ask the questions that need to be asked to, to, to say the things that need to be said. So so I think somewhere in that mix of, of questioning, of listening, but then having the, the wherewithal and the willingness to uh, to be upfront and honest, um, I think are, are almost always good things for, for coaches to have. Which would suggest that the uh, client would also need to be receptive to those difficult questions. <laughs> 
very, very true. Very true. The, uh, there's an interesting line that draws. Sometimes you, you, you come across clients who are absolutely an, an upfront, open and wanting those questions. Occasionally, it's the coach's job, to be honest, to help them under, to help the client understand the value of those questions. Uh, but in the end, yes, the, the, the client has to be receptive. Who are some of your clients? I mean, what sectors are they from? The coaching I do tends to be almost sector agnostic. Uh, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in their, their fields. Uh, I bring more the broader business and coaching side of it. And, and by example, if I, if, I, if I run through a couple of my clients, you know, I've had, had a lot of success as a, a company, one of, uh, one of Australia's leading software development businesses, Formation Technologies. You know, it's an IT company. I'm, I'm definitely not an IT expert. But then someone like Double R Engineering, who, who cover machinery, sales, trade services, to mining, to transport, to construction, through sort of the Pilbara, the gold fields, New South Wales are, are definitely not an engineer, uh, but they've had great deal of success and growth. And then someone like Jungle Fire, who, who've really pioneered breathing walls and other living infrastructure um, and growing very rapidly, they're, they're again in a different sector altogether. So... If I go through my client base, the sectors vary greatly. The, the common ground tends to be they have significant growth aspirations and, and the motivation, the willingness to, to do what's required to, to really achieve considerable things, and, and all of them are achieving really fantastic things. Uh, that would put a lot of onus on you, though. I mean, different sectors, uh, whether it's IT or engineering, you, you would really have to get right across those sectors, wouldn't you? Leon, you have to get across the sector to a point. Uh, again, I don't think my, my role in, in, our, in, in my relationship with my clients, I don't think my role is to, to provide sector-specific expertise. What, what they're looking for, they're, they're all pretty good at their sector. They, they, they're pretty good at their, their field, whatever that might be. And where I can bring value, I believe, is having the broader business knowledge, business understanding, and as a coach, again, helping them to, to have realizations about how they're going about things, whether those be how they're managing their team, how they're building their strategy. Along the way, of course, I need to develop some understanding of their sector. But, but in the end, they're always going to be more expert in that than I am. And what I bring, hopefully, is something additional to, to what they have in themselves and their team. But uh, you would have to be pretty much across the, what's happening in their industry to give them advice. <laughs> I'm going to sound terrible. I'm not. I'm not answering the questions the right way. I fear, but um, yeah, across it to a point. But but I think my role first and foremost is still to help them work out how to find those answers. Think of it as a sports coach. You know, Roger Federer's coach does not get on the court and do the serve for Roger Federer. Roger Federer's coach helps Roger Federer to to train, absolutely, makes observations about how he's going about things, guides him to work it out for himself to a point, to hold some discipline, some accountability. It's that external perspective, the observation of somebody that they themselves can't have of themselves. And, and so in a sense, uh, I'm first and foremost facilitating my clients' development and trying to help them build the capacity in themselves and their teams, by the way, uh, to be able to find those answers and, and put together those plans and uh, create that, that success for themselves. But you would need to have a certain mindset, wouldn't you, to, to be able to do that as a coach? I mean, not everyone can, can actually go down that direction. I think that's a terrific observation, Leon. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, and I'm not sure 
I'm not sure. Maybe the, the word that springs to mind, in a way, it's it's humility. You you certainly have to be accustomed to not knowing the answers as a coach. I think doing it well, you have to be willing to ask questions to which you don't know the answer, and that of course has a, a level of uncertainty about it. So yeah, I think I think it is a mindset which is willing to explore, uh, willing to push people. But as I say, we're willing also not to know the answers, willing often not to be the, the bright kid in the room uh, because together you're helping, helping your clients to come to the right answers. So as a coach, the key issue, the key point for you as a coach would be to work with ambiguity and uncertainty. I think that's certainly part of it. Absolutely right. I think ambiguity and uncertainty is, is part of it. In, in a way, Leon, I think the way, the, the way it sometimes comes together is there's a there's a framework and a structure and a methodology I follow that is relatively consistent and applicable to to almost all businesses. But within that framework, some of the content, the answers, the the strategies that apply to one business against another are, are different. So I, I feel I I try to maintain the structure and the integrity of that framework because I know it works across almost all businesses. But within that, absolutely, there, there is ambiguity that I have to live with because how one business might apply it or how it might work within one industry can, can be quite different. What are the big issues facing businesses now and uh, how do companies deal with them? I think at the top of that list, we, we recently, recently, once a year, I, I get a group of business leaders, business owners uh, together in a, a ski resort in France and we spend a week thrashing out these sorts of questions actually. And, and the, 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 the item that came up at the top of the list, we, we were there just a couple of months ago, the item that came up at the top of the list is talent. Finding, finding the right people, getting them on board, getting them to stay, keeping their enthusiasm, their passion, their commitment. Among my clients and the people I'm talking to, that seems to be at the top of the list of challenges at the moment. And they're investing considerable time and effort, money in some cases, in building the right sort of employee value proposition. Uh, making themselves obviously an attractive place to work and you know they, they like to win awards and, and get on the best places to work and all of that but in the end it's more about the day-to-day -day experience they're able to give their teams and, and their staff making that attractive building really strong cultures uh, for many of my clients and the leaders it's 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 at the top or it's among the top two things they're focused on building the strength of culture the right culture for, for their business that attracts people that keeps people uh, and then just the the processes around how do you bring people in and how how do you how do you manage them? So talent is probably the the top of that list, and then this probably the second item that comes up that people are dealing with in different ways. But the, the speed of change they're confronting now is is almost universally high. Some of it's self induced. Uh, many of my clients, most of my clients, to be honest, they're, they're businesses that are growing pretty fast. They're, they're having a degree of success, but with that comes necessary change. But within their industries anyway, regardless of what they're doing, their industry is the environment at large. There's significant change. And investing the time to stop and consciously identify the changes, the trends that they are subject to, trying to project out intentionally where that's going to lead in one, two, five years or beyond. And then from that, being able to identify what, what's the implication for them or, or, or alternatively, what's the opportunity? What is the set of core assets they can build uh, that, that would optimize their position in that? So actually out of that, I've developed a, 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 
program, in fact, written a book about it, an entire process around developing the right core assets, the best core, the most valuable core assets, reflecting that sort of the changes in the environment in which businesses are operating. So those are probably the two at the top of the list, I think, uh, getting the right talent and, and managing coping with, but also making the most of, of the various changes that people are experiencing. Which means that entrepreneurs who hire a business coach really probably need to take time out to reflect about what's going on. Absolutely, uh, absolutely right. Yes, I think um, if, if there's uh, if there's one thing all business leaders and owners should be doing, it's take that time out to 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 think, to observe, to work on the business, as the expression is. And and obviously, a lot of people struggle to do that. But but taking a coach on board really forces the issue. Um, and and I think, frankly, even without a coach, it's an extremely valuable habit for for anyone to have. Well, Andrew Laurie, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Liam. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Green. Nicholas Gruen, uh, you suggested that culture wars are flattening and dumbing down our discourse around our handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Can you explain that? Sure. So pretty much everywhere you look, all the issues that have, we have to think about and public policy has to think about uh, have sorted themselves out into, into a, an ideological landscape which is very recognisable as a culture war. And, I mean, this is perhaps a little clearer in the United States where wearing masks was turned into a political statement about freedom, uh, but it's also been true here. And as you go through every one of the subjects, and maybe we can do that in this interview, if you look at questions like the lockdown, uh, questions like should we go for suppression or eradication, uh, masks, uh, you know, border control between states, internal borders, all of these things were handled as if you really just needed to know what ideology you had and then you had an answer rather than to handle them in context and according to a, a careful and commonsensical analysis. Well, let, let's start with them. Tell us about the, uh, the discourse around lockdowns. Uh, so uh, we have... Questions like, are you for or against lockdowns? Now, the, the, we actually have a counterexample, which is Sweden, which didn't impose lockdowns. And it ended up with about the same amount of economic damage and 10 times as, as many deaths from COVID. So that seems to me to suggest that at least pursued as a sort of a stopgap that uh, lockdowns make sense. But we had a, a, we had a huge industry. I mean, a, a website was started in the United Kingdom called Lockdown Skeptics. What does that remind you of? Uh, I, had, I had lengthy arguments with people on my blog about whether lockdowns work or not. Now, it's perfectly obvious that a properly imposed lockdown will work to, to, to slow the spread of COVID, but you can still have an argument about whether it's, whether it's economically worthwhile and whether even in health terms, there might be larger health costs than benefits. But that's not how we had it. We had it according to the, the playbook of believers versus skeptics and Common sense wasn't conceded. You just have these two sides uh, lobbing grenades backwards and forwards. And that's, uh, that's a terrible way for, for the public discourse to be pursued. And 
in the United States and Europe and the United Kingdom, it has led to the worst possible outcome, which is yo-yoing from lockdowns, out of lockdowns too early, inadequate testing and tracing, and then second wave, then another lockdown. And so these countries have had massively higher costs than Australia has and New Zealand have uh, and China has because they imposed lockdowns forcefully, early, comprehensively, and kept them on until they'd pretty much eradicated the virus. And, well, there was another big debate around masks, wasn't there? Well, the intriguing thing is that the now uh, ACT Person of the Year, Brendan Masks, our silly Murphy, our former chief medical officer, told us in March that it was just silly to wear masks in the street and basically poo-pooed the wearing of masks. Now, masks are pretty obviously a commonsensical way to lower the spread of COVID. It, it's kind of hard to convince a normal, reasonable person that that's not the case. And yet the medical authorities said virtually nothing. Australia continued to ignore the issue. Woolworths and Coles didn't mandate masks even for their employees. And then all of a sudden, Victoria got into a terrible trouble with the second wave and masks were compulsory, including in deserted parks. Masks are still not compulsory in New South Wales public transport, where they clearly have a role, even though the Premier Gladys Berejiklian spends her time saying, please wear masks. Uh, so it's a, it's a sort of a chaotic, uh, incoherent policy of improvising while the ideological warriors lob grenades left and right. Well, you could say the same happened about the issue of border closures. With border closures, we had the extraordinary situation where the entire country had effectively eradicated the virus and certainly where there was the odd outbreak, it was being contained. And so there were just a few a day at the, at the height of the threats there. And then, then Victoria was getting 800, 800 cases a day and New South Wales said, forget it, you can't, we're, we're closing our borders. Now, of course you should close your borders if any of this strategy makes sense. If it, you could argue reasonably that New South Wales should never have locked down its population. I think that's a wrong argument for reasons I've just gone into. But if you want to argue that, fine. But here we had a situation where all the states of Australia were prepared to incur huge costs. And then we were supposed to sit around and say to the state that had the problem, oh, well, we're a federation. We agreed in 1901 to free movement. And this is a constitutional issue. This is a, an issue of freedom. And uh, so, so that's just extraordinary. And then when common sense and political reality overcame that, you have uh, the, op the sort of equal and opposite situation with the Premier of Queensland imposing lockdowns between New South Wales and Queensland, uh, WA, South Australia, Tasmania, all with these policies where they could have formed a bubble quite early on. So there you are. It's, it's all via the culture war rather than working out the issue on its merits in context. Well, what was interesting with the border closures was that were remarkably political. 
Yes, I mean, well, uh, Gladys yeah. Berejiklian's border closure was politically successful for her. Yeah, that's right. And McGowan's right. border closure has been terribly uh, successful for him in WA. Exactly. And so, you know, when, when the people agree with me, I think, thank God for democracy, and they did agree with me about the obviousness of closing borders to Victoria when it's got a massive second wave going on. And then they, then it turns out that uh, populations, uh, you know, absorb super simple messages and they've got this sort of background xenophobia even to people from other states. That's a pretty unfortunate state of affairs, but that's going to, that's, that's now in the process of sorting itself out, fortunately. And uh, the other big issue was whether we, uh, suppression or eradication. Well, we had a nice little bit of nonsense about that. The actor, if I get his title of the time right, the acting deputy medical officer came out and actually wrote an op-ed saying that we weren't trying to eradicate the virus. We were engaged in aggressive suppression, I think was the term used. The two things are exactly the same in functional terms. Aggressive suppression means eradicating the virus anywhere you know that it exists, not letting up until there are no cases for a, a safe period of days. That's what I call eradication. It is at least reasonable for governments to try to clearly communicate to the community that they may not be able to fully eradicate the virus from Australia, but but unfortunately this and i'm now speaking with some experience on on the blog i run club tropo this turned into a kind of silly exercise of semantics where people who were uh, sort of originally people could carry their skepticism about a lockdown into the next question and my, my argument was never, I don't believe I'm dead, I'm not dead sure I'm right about lockdowns, but given that we pursued lockdowns, of course, the point of the lockdowns was to eradicate the virus and to get it, or to get it to a point where eradication can take place via other means. That, if you've got a virus that can treble the number of daily infections in the space of a week, then there is no alternative but to try to eradicate it everywhere you find it. What are the lessons that we can draw from this? Uh, the, the, the lessons are, I guess, well, uh, the lessons are sort of obvious, which is we should, there should be more common sense, more thinking in context rather than in ideological categories. But uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a sad time for us and politicians pursue simple messages and the people vote for simple messages most of the time. Fortunately, they were able in the case of lockdowns, uh, uh, sorry, in the case of border closures to simply try uh, to, to simply impose their will upon their political masters. And in the case of the, the Victorian borders being closed, thank goodness for that. Well, it's green. Those are quite illuminating words and uh, something for us all to think about. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, in remarks to Congress, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says that the pace of improvement in the economy has moderated in recent months, with future prospects remaining extraordinarily uncertain. 
Powell said that the increase in new COVID-19 cases, both in the US and abroad, was concerning and could prove challenging for the next few months. A full economic recovery is unlikely until people are confident that it is safe to re-engage in a broad range of activities. Powell also said that while progress on developing vaccines had been very positive, significant challenges remained regarding the timing, production and distribution of the vaccine, and it remained difficult to assess the economic implications of this process with any degree of confidence. And biotechnology company Moderna, one of the leaders in the race for coronavirus vaccine, announced it would file for regulatory clearance, a critical milestone that brings the United States a step closer to having two coronavirus vaccines before the end of the year. Moderna's vaccine was 94% effective at preventing illness in a 30,000-person clinical trial, the company said, a performance that exceeds expectations and is on par with the best vaccines. All 30 cases of severe COVID-19, the illness caused by the virus, were in a group that received a placebo. And the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic is of greater concern to Australians than the health effects, a new nationwide survey finds. With the virus suppressed in Australia and the economy emerging from recession, the latest True Issues survey finds 85% of people are concerned about the effect on the economy. This outstrips concerns about the ability of the health system to cope, which is still a relatively high 70%, or the 68% who fear family or close friends being infected. The True Issues survey is conducted quarterly by JWS Research to gauge the issues that concern voters the most and how they rate the government's handling of each. The latest survey of more than 1,000 voters conducted from November the 20th to 22nd finds that while the usual concerns of health, the economy and the cost of living remain foremost in the minds of voters, the environment and climate change has become entrenched as a top five issue of concern. Levels of concern over the environment and climate change waned a little in the middle of a year during the height of the coronavirus crisis. But the latest update shows that they have returned to levels closer to those of last summer, where the nation was ravaged by fire and drought. Climate change rates fifth in the latest survey, with 38% rating it as an issue of concern. This is the same level as in November last year, as the drought hit and the fires took hold, and just below the 42% in February, when the country was burning, and well above the 31% in July. And toxic effects from the coronavirus pandemic will cause further damage to the world's pension systems, which are already struggling to cope with ultra-low interest rates and escalating financial pressures, according to a new study. Pension funds fear that many economies will manage only disappointing, stuttering recoveries after the crisis, and that inflation will surge as a result of the massive emergency monetary measures introduced by central banks to stabilise financial markets, the research found. Nine out of ten of the pension funds warned that they expected investment returns to be lower in the current decade than the last and three quarters expected inflation to increase. And the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development has warned Australia not to withdraw fiscal and monetary policy support before the recovery from the economic shock associated with the coronavirus pandemic is well entrenched. While the OECD is pointing to a relatively rapid recovery from Australia's first recession in 30 years, it has warned the government and the central bank to support the economy during the transition. The new outlook, published on Tuesday night, notes the planned unwinding of Australia's strong fiscal support rolled out during the first wave of the pandemic will be a headwind to higher GDP growth in the second half of 2021. It predicts that unemployment will also rise further because of the gradual phasing out of job retention programs and increased labour force participation. The OECD also points to two risks for the domestic outlook, a possible fall in business and consumer confidence as reduced government support is accompanied by rising business liquidations and unemployment. The second nominated risk is the escalating diplomatic crisis with Beijing. 
The OECD warns any additional escalation in geopolitical tensions with China could undermine growth in exports. And the Reserve Bank has kept the official cash rate and the three-year bond target on hold at 0.1%. In Australia, the economic recovery is underway and recent data have generally been better than expected, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said in a statement following the meeting. This is good news, but the recovery is still expected to be uneven and drawn out and it remains dependent on significant policy support. Dr Lowe reiterated that given the outlook for both employment and inflation, monetary and fiscal support will be required for some time. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has told a parliamentary committee fiscal stimulus has played a critical role in supporting the economy through the coronavirus pandemic, and he now expected unemployment to peak between 7% and 8%. And Australia has exited recession after the economy grew 3.3% quarter-on-quarter in the September quarter. Economists had expected 2.5% quarter-on-quarter growth. The quarterly rebound lifted the year-on-year contraction to 3.8%. Economists had forecast a contraction of 4.4%. The combination of massive fiscal and monetary stimulus snapped a two-quarter run of negative growth. The economy contracted 7% in the second quarter, following 0.3% in the first quarter. And national house prices are on track to recover losses suffered in the pandemic and hit a new high if the current level of growth is maintained. The latest CoreLogic property price index shows house prices have continued to rise nationally in the face of the coronavirus-driven recession. Property analysts no longer expect 10 to 20% declines in house prices and expect that if the virus remains under control in Australia, prices will rise more by early next year. After gains in October, CoreLogic's national index recorded a second consecutive monthly rise in November, with dwelling values up 0.8% over the month and 3.1% over the year. CoreLogic's Head of Residential Research, Eliza Owen, said that this showed a new recovery trend following a 2.1% drop in Australian home values between April and September. And the potential loss of Victoria's AAA credit rating could cost the state up to $10 million per year, the Treasury has revealed. Treasurer Tim Pallas has acknowledged he cannot guarantee that Victoria will maintain its AAA credit rating as state debt soars in the wake of two coronavirus lockdowns and widespread job losses. The massive spend in the state budget will take the government's net debt to nearly $155 billion within three years, more than 28% of Victoria's total annual economic output. International credit agencies have reacted coolly to the record level of debt and foreshadowed a review of the state's AAA credit rating. If Victoria is stripped of its top credit rating, Lenders will likely charge the state a higher rate of interest. Big rating agency Standard & Poor's put Victoria's AAA rating on a negative credit watch in August, the only state to attract that action, and last Tuesday reiterated its view that from that time there was a one-in-two likelihood that we will lower our rating on Victoria. And the Morrison government is rallying international support over its trade disputes with China, formally raising with the World Trade Organization Beijing's stonewalling of efforts to resolve issues and urging an end to discrimination against Australian exporters. Australian trade negotiators used a top-level WTO meeting last week to complain that the moves against local exporters were unfair and the country was being singled out for harsh treatment. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has flagged a lifeline for winemakers after Chinese Ministry of Commerce imposed tariffs of up to 200% on Australian wine on Friday over complaints it is being dumped. One of the worst affected, Treasury Wine Estates, faces losing more than 30% of its annual profits because of the Chinese duties. And Australia's largest wine company, Treasury Wine Estates, says its imports into China have been slugged with a massive 169.3% tariffs and it will implement emergency measures to minimise the damage. 
Treasury's well-known brands include Penfolds, Wolfblast and Lindemans. Trade relations between Australia and China deteriorated even further last week after Beijing imposed crippling import taxes ranging from 107 to 200% on all Australian wine. The move followed the preliminary findings of a Chinese anti-dumping investigation, which claimed Australian winemakers were selling wine below the cost of production and causing China's winemakers substantial harm. Treasury Wine Estate said it expected demand for its wine in China to be extremely limited from now on. The tariffs of so-called anti-dumping security deposits will be charged to Chinese importers who order Treasury's wine in bottles of two litres or less. In the wider context, the coronavirus sell-off and worsening Australian-China relations have caused Treasury's share price to fall by more than half since late January, when its shares were $17.80. And Qatar has taken steps to shut down the $300 million a year lamb trade with Australia in the latest blow to farmers and meat processors already suffering from China import bans in what some see as another retaliatory blow linked to culturally insensitive diplomacy. Qatar has abruptly ended a subsidy which has underpinned the trade with Australia for the past five years. The Qatar move comes after the Morrison government raised concerns over invasive searches of Australian women travellers at Doha's Hamad International Airport in October. Lamb exporters and sheep industry leaders were reluctant to publicly link the trade disruption to the outcry over the searches for fear of inflaming the situation. Karim Noll, the boss of Sydney headquarters Al Karim Exports, said Qatar was one of Australia's biggest and most important markets and the trade disruption had come without warning. An embattled casino operator Crown Resorts has tapped a new former National Australia Bank executive to be its new Chief Compliance and Financial Crimes Officer. Stephen Blackburn will start on March 1st after serving as Chief Financial Crime Officer and Group Money Laundering Reporting Officer at NAB. He will lead Crown's new Compliance and Financial Crimes Department and report directly to the Chief Executive and the Board. And the banking regulator has hit Westpac with an enforcement action for lax compliance and material breaches of a standard on liquidity, forcing the bank to undertake independent reviews and fix issues. The action is yet another blow to Westpac after agreed to pay a record $1.3 billion penalty to financial crimes regulator Ostrac for millions of breaches of anti-money laundering laws. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority announced the latest enforcement action against Westpac in relation to breaches identified during 2019 and 20. It slapped Westpac with a more onerous calculation of its liquidity ratio and further action could be taken by APRA and its counterpart in New Zealand over the failings. Banks need to hold highly liquid assets to be able to fund short-term cash outflows and these levels are stipulated by regulators. And the financial services watchdog has dragged Australia's biggest bank to court over the slugging of interest charges upon more than 2,200 customers. The Commonwealth Bank is accused of charging 34% interest on business overdraft accounts between December 2011 and March 2018, despite the advertised rate of between 14.55% and 16%. The difference netted the bank more than $2.9 million, financial regulator ASIC said in court papers on Tuesday. And the plunging share price of Crown Resorts and the scrapping of its dividend has weighed heavily on James Packer's flagship private company, which slumped to a $400 million paper loss and had more than $600 million wiped from its assets. The financial accounts of a billionaire's consolidated press holdings, lodged with a corporate regulator late on Monday evening, reveal how the earnings hit Crown took due to COVID-19, had a knock-on effect on Mr Packer's wealth. CPH made a $402 million loss for the year to June 30 from only a $16 million revenue, compared to a $46 million profit from $320 million income in 2019.
Much of the loss was due to the fall in Crown share price during the 2020 financial year, in which it fell by more than 25%, and a subsequent fall in the value of assets on the CPH balance sheet. Mr Packer has also missed out on a big payday from his major shareholding in Crown, which in August cancelled its final dividend for the 2020 financial year, after its profits and revenue fell due to the forced closure of its Melbourne and Perth casinos at the height of the pandemic. And retailers are reporting an exuberant consumer response to Black Friday, the annual pre-Christmas sales bonanza, following months of lockdowns and closed borders, and amid a growing optimism that the end of the pandemic is in sight. The National Retail Association had already projected a record-breaking Christmas season, including $5.3 billion of sale over the four days between Black Friday and its e-commerce counterpart Cyber Monday. That included a projected $1.8 billion in online sales. Retailers said the early signs were that the weekend sales had drawn the expected choppers both online and at brick-and-mortar stores. Qantas has rejected a last-minute attempt to save 2,000 ground-handling jobs and will instead lay off those staff and outsource the work. The decision affects workers across 10 airports and takes the number of job cuts at Qantas since the pandemic to about 8,500, almost a third of the airline's pre-pandemic workforce. Qantas originally said it would consider outsourcing ground handling, baggage handling, catering and cabin service roles in August, believing it could save $100 million a year in staffing costs and another $80 million required to upgrade in-house equipment over the next five or six years. It prompted a stern reaction from the Transport Workers Union, who called on Chief Executive Alan Joyce to re-sign and pay back JobKeeper subsidies given to the company. Due to Qantas's enterprise bargaining conditions with the TWU, the union was able to submit its own bid last week to try to save its members' jobs. However, Qantas criticised that bid in a statement on Monday, saying it had significant gaps and was unable to compete with third-party offers. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tommy Huppert, founder and CEO of medicinal cannabis company Canatrek, which is doing a capital raising and developing export markets for Australian medicinal cannabis. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about the latest GDP figures and the state of the Australian economy moving forward. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 